Welcome to the Employment Law and HR Podcast with your host, Allison Colley. Hello and welcome to this episode 208 of the Employment Law and HR Podcast. I'm your host, Alison Colley. I'm an employment solicitor and HR specialist, and I run the firm Real Employment Law Advice, where together with my colleagues, we provide advice and assistance to both employers and employees throughout the UK. The aim of this podcast is to bring you updates on all things employment law and HR related, including updates on cases, best practice, and mini series on a variety of topics. In this week's episode, I'm going to be covering gross misconduct, and it's a subject that I had been asked to cover by our Harbour members in one of our monthly webinars. Now, if you're interested in having ongoing support and advice from an employment solicitor and specialist in HR, then why not get in touch for a no-obligation quote? You could be on our monthly webinars, learning topics and keeping up to date on the law and HR, as well as having that support on an ongoing basis for a very reasonable price. If you'd like any further information, you can email me. My email address is alison at realemploymentoradvice.co.uk. So without further ado, I'm going to get into this week's featured content. Now, as I said at the outset, I was asked to cover gross misconduct and what is gross misconduct for one of our Harbour members' um, webinars. And the reason they were asking is because it is something that can be quite tricky for people to understand and get your head around. So when we talk about gross misconduct, what we're actually talking about is a mixed question of both law and fact. And this is why it can be quite complex for employers and HR professionals to understand. In a case the case of Sandwell and West Birmingham Hospitals versus Westwood. Within that judgment, it said, gross misconduct justifying dismissal must amount to a repudiation of the contract of employment by the employee. The conduct must be a deliberate and willful contradiction of the contractual terms. Alternatively, it must amount to a very considerable negligence, historically summarised as gross negligence. Now, in the majority of cases that I deal with, when we're talking about gross misconduct, it is to do with their conduct. So it's something that goes really to the heart of the contract that makes it untenable for the relationship to continue. There are occasions where gross negligence or considerable negligence may be um, the reason for the gross misconduct, but generally we're talking about conduct issues. So what is the main difference between misconduct and gross misconduct? Well, from a legal standpoint, it's that a dismissal for ordinary misconduct is normally paid with notice. So you normally pay notice in full or payment in lieu. Normally, they would have been given a a warning or a written warning. And normally, that would be on the final written warning. So general misconduct dismissals are normally as a result of previous conduct or there is a history of conduct that then leads to that final decision to dismiss. Otherwise, just general misconduct wouldn't be a justification for instant dismissal. And as we were saying, gross misconduct really is the most serious type of conduct. It's something that the employee does that would entitle the employer to dismiss them without notice, without payment and live notice, and without having those previous warnings. So those are the real differences. 
gross misconduct is the very serious type of conduct that really goes to the heart of the relationship. But what actually constitutes gross misconduct? And this is the question that poses the most difficulty for employers. And that is because it is a mixed question of fact and law. And so the facts will vary depending on the individual circumstances. So it will vary depending on the circumstances of the employer. So the nature of the work that you undertake, it will vary according to the employee and the work that the employee carries out. And it will also vary depending on the position of the employee in the organisation. So to give you an example of what I mean here is that in a scenario where an employee is guilty of misconduct in an organisation such as a solicitor's firm, for example, may not be the same justification of gross misconduct in a supermarket. So As a solicitor, you're required to hold yourself to a very high level of standards, professional standards that we have to adhere to. And so conduct of a solicitor may be gross misconduct, but in a supermarket setting, for example, it might just be something that justifies a warning or a final written warning. And then you've got to take into consideration the position of the employee in that organisation. So the same misconduct of somebody who works, let's just say, on the checkout at a supermarket may not justify dismissal immediately. But if the person is the manager of the store, then what they have, if they did the same thing, that might constitute gross misconduct. So there are a number of factors that should be taken into consideration when deciding if the conduct is something that constitutes a warning or gross misconduct. And sometimes you can and employers can justify the decision to dismiss somebody in a circumstance where in another organisation or in another role, it might not justify dismissal. And again, I understand that this also causes confusion for employers around what they should do in instances of serious misconduct. And there's an example case I'm going to talk about um, later on which illustrates the point around the position of the employees, so the type of work they did and the type of organisation and why that that constituted gross misconduct in that case and why it might not in another. It will hopefully make sense when I talk about the case later on. Now, generally, gross misconduct is known to be things like theft, fraud, physical violence, serious negligence, as I said, serious breach of health and safety regulations. And those kinds of things would cut across all kinds of employment and all roles. So theft of any sort in any role at any organisation is most likely to be a justification for dismissal immediately for gross misconduct. The same goes for physical violence, although um, there are some alternatives where it may be considered that there are mitigating circumstances, but generally um, it's seen as being Uh, something that would constitute gross misconduct. Now, in terms of how you set out what constitute gross misconduct for your organisation, I think it's really important to set out those things that are particular to you. So those things that are particularly important to your business or organisation that may be peculiar um, than in others. Just because you have it set out in the disciplinary policy or rules doesn't necessarily mean that it would justify dismissal for gross misconduct in an unfair dismissal claim. But what it does do is it helps to contribute to that and helps to contribute to your justification. So if there is something that's really important to you 
as an organisation that would be essentially something that you couldn't continue or couldn't possibly continue to employ someone for, then you should include that within your disciplinary rules as an example of gross misconduct. But the list could include things like bringing the organisation into disrepute, particularly if your business is one where reputation is very important or you need to have a certain level of standing in order to meet uh, regulatory requirements or like in a solicitor's scenario or if you need to have certain standards to meet for tendering or contracts that you have then it's important that you keep that in there. Things like accepting a bribe or other secret payments, conviction of a criminal offence that may affect reputation or relationships with staff, customers or the public or otherwise affect suitability to continue to work. Now that one is quite important and you could also include arrest for a criminal offence that may affect reputational relationships. I've seen that in practice in terms of organisations where employees have been arrested uh, because of things like having child pornography on their computers or their devices. Often employers will come to me and ask what they can do mostly about reputation but also about how other staff members feel about working with them. So if that is something that you think would be important to you and could potentially impact the long-term ability to employ them then it's important that you put that in your rules as well. Possession and use or supply or attempted supply of illegal drugs is another one and then there are other things that have come up that I'm I'm seeing in people's policies and rules and that's things like uh, working from abroad without written Um, approval so where people are working from home or working remotely and we've seen scenarios where people have gone off to somewhere else in the world and sort of stayed there and they're not told their employer again if that's important to you it's it's important to put it in your rules Um, failing to return to the UK or their normal place of work if they're asked to in accordance with any arrangement to work overseas repeatedly working from home contrary to the terms of their contract breach of statutory rules, unauthorised use and processing of data um, under the data protection policy, failing to work their contractual hours when they work from home. Um, That might be something that could potentially constitute gross misconduct. Again, I'm not sure it would have to depend on the individual circumstances as to whether you would have to give them a warning first, but you could include it within your list of what constitutes gross misconduct for you. So if you need to dismiss somebody for gross misconduct and then they disagree with that decision and decide to pursue a claim for unfair dismissal, what exactly would the Employment Tribunal consider and look at? Well, it's the same rules in relation to the test for establishing if it's a fair reason for dismissal as it would be for a normal conduct dismissal. But in some ways there is a higher threshold to get over if you dismiss someone for gross misconduct without previous warnings. So in conduct cases, when the employment tribunal consider whether or not the dismissal was reasonable, they must have regard to whether at the time you as the employer, A, genuinely believed that the employee was guilty of the misconduct, so you must genuinely believe they have done it. B, you had reasonable grounds on which to base that belief. So it's not just sufficient to say, well, I know they did it or I had a hunch. You need to have some genuine basis for that belief. And at the time that you make that decision, you've carried out as much investigation as was reasonable in the circumstances. And those three points there are known as the Birchall test. So it's from a 
case, a leading case called British Home Stores Limited versus Birchall from 1978. And that's sort of the foundation for considering whether a dismissal was reasonable or not in an unfair dismissal case. What's important to note in this is that the Employment Tribunal won't substitute their own view for that of the employer. Instead, what they'll do is look at whether it was within the range of reasonable responses available to a reasonable employer. So even if a tribunal consider that actually it's not something that they would have done, a decision they would have made, they have to look at actually would it be within the range of reasonable responses for employers in a similar circumstance. And the takeaway thing from those three key points is when you are looking at dismissing someone for gross misconduct, even if it's very obvious that they have done it, you need to make sure that you've got the foundation for your belief that they have done it. So making sure that you undertake an investigation, you gather the evidence, and then you form that belief. And if you've done that and you can justify it, you've got the information in writing, you've followed the right process, then that's much easier to justify the decision to dismiss someone for gross misconduct. Now, obviously, we've talked about unfair dismissal and the potential for somebody making a claim for unfair dismissal where they've been dismissed for gross misconduct. But another claim that that an employee may make in those circumstances is known as wrongful dismissal. And this is where they've been dismissed without notice. And when you dismiss someone for gross misconduct, generally it's immediate dismissal because they've breached the contract so considerably that you can't continue. So if somebody makes a claim for wrongful dismissal, again, what's quite confusing for employers is understanding that the tests that the employment tribunal will apply in a wrongful dismissal case is different to that in an unfair dismissal case. So in a wrongful dismissal case, the tribunal must be satisfied that on the balance of probabilities that there was an actual repudiation of the contract by the employee. It's not enough as an employer to prove you had a reasonable belief, as with the unfair dismissal test, you have to have been able to show that there was an actual breach, they actually did what you're alleging on the balance of probabilities, so more likely than not. And as I said, this is a very different standard to that with an unfair dismissal. And sometimes, again, it can seem quite unfair for employers when they're looking at this to say, well, how can it not be unfair dismissal to dismiss them, but it can be wrongful? Why do I have to pay the notice? So the essential thing is whether the employee was actually in breach of the contract to the extent that their conduct would be regarded as repudiatory. Um, not whether or not you reasonably believed it. And it is a factual question. So whether they are guilty of the conduct that's so serious as to amount to a breach of contract is down to the facts of this situation. And I'll give some examples of um, where this applies shortly. But it may be that you are able to convince the employment tribunal that you genuinely believe this person had been guilty of the misconduct that you had reasonable grounds, you'd done an investigation and therefore the tribunal are satisfied in relation to the unfair dismissal claim. But they actually look at it and think, well, there isn't sufficient evidence to show that the employee did what was alleged on the balance of probabilities and therefore they're entitled to notice pay. One way to get around this potential issue arising in a real life situation is where you are dismissing someone for gross misconduct. You can dismiss them immediately and you may just say, well, we're going to pay you in lieu of your notice period as a gesture of goodwill, whilst we don't accept 
that we are acting in breach of your contract and that you have actually breached it yourself and therefore we could dismiss you without notice. We're actually paying you in lieu of notice. Because often, in most cases, notice isn't that long. Maybe no more than three months is the kind of norm. There may be some circumstances where an employee's contract provides for much longer notice, in which case you'll need to consider that carefully. But, you know, if you're only talking about a couple of weeks' pay, it may be worth paying them that in lieu of notice to avoid the situation where they do seek to bring a claim for wrongful dismissal and the costs and hassle involved with that. Now, when it comes to understanding areas of law which are particularly complicated or complex for employers to get their head around, I always think it's good to look at some example cases. So I did a quick search on the Employment Tribunal Judgments section for gross misconduct cases and came up with a couple of cases that I thought would be interesting to share with you. And you can find all the details on the Employment Tribunal Judgments um, online, which I will share in the show notes. But the first one is Mr. George versus Dorset Healthcare University NHS Foundation Trust, which is an employment tribunal claim from 2022. So uh, Mr. George was a nurse who was dismissed for gross misconduct in relation to the provision of medication. And his case was he claimed unfair dismissal plus discrimination, but In essence, his case was that he was treated more harshly than non-Indian employees would have been. And in the past, others who had been guilty of misconduct had been dealt with on an informal basis. There were a number of policies and procedures, as you'll imagine, in relation to an NHS trust, in relation to what constitute gross misconduct. And within that, it considered things like an act or admission that has the potential to place a child or vulnerable adult at risk. So as you'd expect, it was considered to be gross misconduct. And that was essentially the charge for which he was dismissed, that he'd placed someone at risk. Mr. George did not admit any of the charges that he was alleged. And there were various allegations about his conduct, which included things like sleeping at work, not observing medication and not completing an incident report form. And he believed that he should have been given the chance to learn from his mistakes. Uh, And he obviously referred to the fact that others had been treated differently. Now, one thing to consider when you're dismissing someone for gross misconduct is how you have treated others. And going back to what I was saying earlier about the justification for different decisions, as long as you can justify that, so you could say, well, we dismissed this person for gross misconduct because they're in a more senior role, essentially they'd had more training, they should have known better than somebody more junior, for example. But in this case, um, Mr. George was saying that others had been treated more leniently. Now, the employment tribunal in this case accepted that the employer genuinely believed on reasonable grounds after a reasonable investigation that Mr. George had committed acts of gross misconduct. The decision maker reasonably believed that he had actually done what was alleged and had good grounds for that belief. And they also believed that he wouldn't learn from his mistakes and there was a lack of recognition of any wrongdoing. So in this case, I think what they said was the differentiation between Mr George and other employees was that he had not learned from it. He wasn't showing any recognition of what he'd done being wrong. And that's quite an important point and important for employees to know in relation to conduct cases is that If there is the possibility that you did what is alleged, then there are times when it is worth conceding 
yes, I did do it and I am really sorry and I understand why it's wrong and I definitely won't do it again. Can you give me another chance? And I often advise people if there is sufficient evidence and they did do what's alleged to be conciliatory about it, to show that they have learned from it, um, to show remorse and to hopefully appeal to the employer's better nature to give them another chance. And maybe in this case, I don't know, but if Mr. George had done that, then the decision maker may have reached a different decision and perhaps given him a final written warning. What was interesting about this case, and it illustrates the point I was making earlier, is that in relation to his claim for wrongful dismissal, and Mr. George was successful with his claim, as the tribunal considered that the employer was not able to prove on the balance of probabilities that Mr. George had been doing what was alleged, particularly in relation to being asleep on duty. The next case is Miss E Greenaway, uh, sorry, E Greenaway Evans versus Countryside Properties UK Limited. Now, in this case, Miss Greenaway Evans had been employed for 21 years and was in a managerial position. So a long-serving employee in a senior role. The employer in this case relied on their harassment and bullying policy and proceeded to justify their decision to dismiss. And there were four discrete allegations made uh, against Miss Greenaway Evans, which they held were gross misconduct and had referred to their harassment and bullying policy. And the crucial thing about this case was that the sources of these allegations had come from different places. There were things from an exit interview form, handwritten notes and an email after the exit interview were all relied upon to create the allegations against the employee in this case. The Employment Tribunal concluded that the employer had no reasonable grounds for forming the belief that the employee had actually committed gross misconduct. Critically, they hadn't done a reasonable investigation. The investigation had been inadequate and had not been capable of reaching a reasonable conclusion that she was guilty of the gross misconduct alleged. One of the criticisms from the case was that hearsay was not clarified and had been relied upon by the decision maker. The employer had in this case, in essence, jumped on what they had considered to be serious allegations that were made and then formed a view without seeking to investigate the truth of it. So again, this case is quite important to highlight why employers need to look into allegations, look into the source of them, why they've come about, why have they come about at this time, who's raised it and why, what evidence is there to support what's being said. And instead of just thinking, crikey, these are really serious allegations of bullying, um, we need to deal with this ASAP, they should have paused and then really got someone involved to look at it objectively and maybe even an external person if they thought that they were too close to it to be able to get to the point of view where they could say, yes, there is sufficient evidence to form this view. And because they didn't do that, because they didn't do that foundation step before dismissing the employee, they then had an unfair dismissal claim that was successful against them. The next case I want to tell you about is Mr. Hubby versus yourmove.co.uk. And this is an appeal tribunal case from 2022. And I actually covered it in detail in episode 197 of the podcast, if you want to go back and listen. I've included it again here because it's a good example of where the test for gross misconduct may be different depending on your role. Um, So in essence, Mr. Pubby was a financial consultant who had been dismissed for gross misconduct because he had failed to disclose to his employer that he'd been made bankrupt. 
there was no express contractual term or written policy requiring him to tell his employer that he'd been made bankrupt. But his employer, Your Move, had placed a very high importance on the financial soundness of its sales consultants and they were expecting a very high standard of conduct and in fact anybody who works in the financial services industry will know that you have to maintain your own level of financial stability um, in order to continue to work in that industry and what they said was that he should have known that even though it wasn't written down no one actually told him he should have known that he would need to disclose that to them. And so there were two allegations against him. One was the failure to notify and the second was his inability to operate as a financial consultant. Um, in this case, it was held that actually it was fair for the employer to dismiss because he should have disclosed it. So although there was no written duty, nothing written down, and there is no general implied duty on an employee to disclose their own misconduct, in this case, because of his role and what he did, he did have that obligation. So again, just illustrating that things may be different depending on the type of organisation and the type of role that the individual undertakes. In contrast to the puppy case is a case called Basildon Academies versus Amadi, and that's an employment appeal tribunal case where the appeal tribunal upheld the tribunal's decision that a teacher had been unfairly dismissed for gross misconduct for failing to disclose allegations of sexual misconduct made against him at a different college. So in this case, the employee had failed to disclose something, like Mr Pubby, which the employer considered to be important to the role that he undertook, and he was dismissed. But in this case, the tribunal and the appeal tribunal agreed that actually it wasn't fair to dismiss him. And there was no express term requiring him to disclose such allegations and there was no implied duty upon him to disclose it. And in the absence of that, then it was unfair to dismiss him because he didn't disclose it. And again, this is where it's important if there are things that you need to cover off for your own business organisation, that you include those in your policies, procedures and handbooks. So to summarise, a couple of key points to take away from this in relation to gross misconduct. The first is that a fair and thorough investigation is crucial, even in cases of obvious and serious misconduct. So where an allegation is made might seem obvious that they've done it and it's very serious. It's still important to follow the same steps in the investigation as you would in any other case. The person who makes the decision to dismiss must genuinely believe that the person is guilty of that misconduct and if you're the person who is the disciplinary chair for example and you're making the decision to dismiss someone you have to make that decision knowing that at some point you could potentially be questioned by the employment tribunal and cross-examined on your decision making so you really must have that belief and you should make that decision based on your own genuine belief not being influenced by others otherwise again that could undermine the decision and you could end up with an unfair dismissal case if you think that this is something there could be a potential risk of a claim so when you get the allegations or you start to explore it actually you think this is quite tricky it's potentially high risk of the employee making a claim 
then it's important to seek some outside assistance with the investigation or the decision making. There are organisations that may be able to help you, um, such as my own. We often help in terms of undertaking investigations, looking at things objectively, or sometimes even making the decision on behalf of the employer following an internal investigation. So if you do need to outsource it, you can contact an organisation like my own and we'd be happy to help with that. The fourth thing is even if you genuinely believe there is misconduct, if you're unable to prove on the balance of probabilities, so more likely than not, then it is best to pay notice pay. And as I was saying, you can cover that off by saying, you know, we've reached the decision that what you've done is gross misconduct and we're giving you dismissal immediately. We don't have to pay you notice, but as a gesture of goodwill, we're going to pay you in lieu of your notice period. And so that will then wipe out any possibility of a wrongful dismissal claim if you have that worry or a risk that might come up. And then finally, again, setting the foundations, making sure you set very clear rules um, about what's important to you, what the conduct is that you expect of your employees, what you require them to disclose in terms of their own misconduct or conduct outside of work or in previous settings. Um, And what's very important to you needs to be made very clear to the employees in order to help you justify any decision later on. So I hope you found that podcast useful and interesting in relation to gross misconduct. Hopefully you don't find yourself in a situation where you're dealing with too many uh, allegations or issues of gross misconduct. But if you do and you want any support or help, then my team would be happy to help you. As I said, we can undertake the um, investigations, we can do the disciplinary meetings or appeals, or we can just guide you and your staff through the process, providing that advice that you may need. So if you have any questions or you'd like any advice and support, please don't hesitate to get in touch. You can contact me directly by email. My email is alison at realemploymentadvice.co.uk or alternatively, you can call the office on 01983 897 And my lovely colleague, Kathy would be happy to help you and to set you up with an appointment with one of the solicitors. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time to invest in listening and if you have enjoyed the podcast and you like the content then please do subscribe wherever you're listening, um, download, leave a review, leave a score, whatever platform you're listening on. Um, If you can engage with the podcast then it does help other people to find it and obviously helps to boost the number of people who are listening. So thank you very much in advance and I look forward to bringing you the podcast again in two weeks time. Thanks again for listening. Just want to finalise by saying I wouldn't be a lawyer unless I had a legal disclaimer. So I must just say to you that the information in this podcast is for information only. It's general review and a general update. It's always necessary to get specific legal advice about your circumstances. So please don't rely on anything that you've heard in this podcast. But please do feel free to contact me if you'd like further information or specific advice.